Okay, so we are back for another podcast episode. Um, our good friend Richard Dowdy has asked us to come back to Santa Clara and to record another episode. And so my name is Josh Carter, and I live and work in San Francisco. I live there with my wife, Katie, and my son, Milo. Yeah, and I'm, I'm Josh Lewis. I'm also living in uh, San Francisco with my family, and I'm excited to be back. Yeah, it's good to be back. We appreciate uh, Richard's invitation and glad to be a part of this again. I think uh, he's been doing a lot of good things. And so he's asked us to talk about the source and the definition of sin, and particularly from maybe the perspective of an outsider, somebody that uh, is either skeptical or unfamiliar with the Bible and with the concept of sin. And so uh, we've got a few texts in mind um, of where we want to go to to talk about this, but it's not really a scripted conversation, more of just sort of like a planned one. And so we have at least three texts that we want to spend some time at and starting with Genesis chapter three. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what better place to start when you're beginning this conversation than really the very beginning where God begins everything that we know? Right. Yeah, and so, uh, I mean, maybe it would be helpful to talk about what other people might think about the idea of sin, or maybe it'd be helpful to talk about that as we go and as it comes up naturally. But, I mean, I think that a lot of people think of sin as sort of like this invented concept, um, maybe an arbitrary rule that Christians or the church has somehow invented, and even like a constraining type thing where it's like, here's a set of rules do this, don't do this, um, and like unnecessarily telling people how to live their lives. And what we hope to do is to present sin the way God presents sin to us so we can understand the consequences of it and the reality of it. So I think we decided to start by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And if we're going to talk about the source and definition of sin, it seems pretty logical to start with like the first one. So... Do you want to go ahead and read that? And then we can get into it. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, so we have this serpent that slithers up, and actually maybe not slithers in the context, uh, knowing sort of the consequences that God puts on him after this. But in verse 1, it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So I guess like the first question is, all right, so what's this snake all about? Like, who is he? And what do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good question because when you look at in Genesis 3, you don't really know anything about him or it more than what is offered in verse 1 when he's introduced. It's just that he's craftier than any other beast of the field. And certainly there are a lot of ideas that come with who this one is, and I think it's made more clear as you see the Bible story unfold who this represents. But in this text, you just see a snake, and he's a talking one, and he comes saying things that are actually contrary to what God had already instructed them with. So minimally in this story, he represents kind of uh, an enemy or a naysayer of God, Um, but we would call him the devil or Satan, as we know him later in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really not until the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where it specifically mentions that the dragon is that great serpent of old and specifically identified as the devil or Satan. But 
sort of like his primary MO here is temptation. Um, temptation and deception, it seems like, to present an alternative to what God has said, um, to create some doubt and to create distance between God and, and his creation. So understanding all of that about the serpent, what do you think we ought to see about sin? Like this this idea of what is sin, who decides what is sinful, the definition of what sin actually is. Uh, what can we learn from from this first demonstration of it? Well, I think first we have to understand that in this part of the narrative, when this serpent approaches the woman and begins to tempt her, she understands what God has already said. Back in chapter 2, God had made clear that they weren't supposed to be eating from this tree. And she even relays that to the one tempting her, this serpent. And so I think maybe as we approach the question that you just asked about what should we understand about sin, I think we need to understand that the truth is understood first, that reality is comprehended and even respoken by this woman. She reiterates it. And what this snake says, what this serpent says, is just a, a small change of that. You know, in chapter 2, God says, if you eat of this tree, you'll die. And when she relays that to the serpent, the serpent says, well, you won't die. You shall not die. And so sin really, I think, fundamentally is a changing of what's true, but it's always not a wholesale change. It can be like these small changes. Mm. Like a, a recapitulation or like, uh, I don't know, an alternative reality that's not so different, but just different enough to deceive. And and so, like, I, I think that, like, the serpent starts by creating some doubt in the woman's mind. So, you know, in verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so I guess what would you say to that point specifically, did, like, what's the answer to this question? Did God actually say that or not? Yeah, you you know, if you read one chapter 1, chapter 2, and you get to chapter 3, and you just pause there, you're kind of like, yes. <laughs> yes, he did say that. And I think maybe what's implied by kind of the skepticism of asking that question is questioning the motivation of making that standard or that rule, Right. Yeah, he said that. That's the simple answer. But maybe what's behind that is like, well, why would he say that to you? Um, you're not going to die, right? And so now you begin to question the motivation of God. Like, well, why would he say that to me? Yeah. Well, I mean, but I think it's worth pointing out that like that's not what God said. It's kind of the opposite of what God said. He said, you can eat of any tree of the garden except for that one. Right. And so the serpent is sort of like putting this negative spin on it. And he's saying like, man, God's commandments are so like limiting and constraining and like who wants to submit to that? Did God say that there was a tree that you couldn't eat of? And so he focuses on the one thing God said, don't eat <laughs> right, of, right. instead of like all the thousands of things that God said you could eat of. And so like God had really given them a lot of liberty and freedom. And I, I think like for their own good had told them stay away from this one thing. And that's the thing that the serpent focuses on. Like, you can't do that really. Wow. So there's like this uh, like negative light, I think, cast on, on what God has said. Yeah. And it's really easy to, to sympathize, I think, with some of the things that the serpent is kind of bringing up because it is easy to focus on maybe the one place you're not supposed to go as opposed to all the other provisions that you've been given, right? Like the one tree you're not supposed to eat of versus the whole garden. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, the nature of what we begin to understand as sin is there's a truth, there's a commandment, there's an expectation that God might give, a purpose God might give, and we want the exceptional. We want maybe the temptation comes in the place that we wish we could be, um, and so this uh, serpent here is operating kind of in the questioning of why is there an exception? Why is there this one thing that is being held back from you? Yeah. Is God keeping something good from you? Is that what it's about? Right. 
And so there's like the doubt that's cast, the like negative sort of perception that's cast. And then there's just a straight up lie in verse four. Like, and that's the lie that you were referencing where like by, by adding one small word, God had said, you will surely die. And the serpent just lies and says, you will not surely die. And I, man, I, I feel like Satan still deceives people in very similar ways today by taking something true and adding just like one small little word or one small little thought that totally changes what God has actually revealed. So what stands out to me too about the woman and the sin that's committed is that in verse six, it says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And I think you referenced this earlier that like in creation in chapter one, over and over again, we see that God sees that something is good. And so what do you see as being the point of of that, that the woman saw that the tree was good for food? Um, And how does that help us to define actually what sin is? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think when you go back to the beginning of the book, just a couple chapters prior, you see God speaking things into existence And whenever they come to be, God looks at them, he observes them, and that's where you see that phrase begin, and he saw that it was good. And so maybe this woman seeing that this tree was good for food is standing in contrast to what God has been doing throughout this account in creating and saying that something was good. And so maybe most fundamentally what we need to understand in the creation of all things, ourselves included, God has made that. And he said it in such a way that it fulfilled his purpose. And when he observed that it was as as exactly as he said it would be or he intended it to be is when he deemed it good. And so really what we're looking at is, does a thing fulfill God's purpose for it? And if it does, then that's when it really is good. And so when the woman observes that this tree is good for food, she's now kind of in the role of God, like, Satan has tempted her, the serpent has tempted her to kind of maybe rethink some things. And she says, you know what? This does look like it's good for food to me, and it's good to me. And now she's in the place of God saying that this thing is good for something that God never intended it to be good for, mm. for her. Yeah, so so maybe like one way to define sin is when something or somebody apart from the Creator determines what is good you know like and and who better to say what is good than the one who made it the one who knows like how it was made and its intended purpose and what would be fulfilling and and right for it but then for somebody else whether it's you know satan being the tempter or for us who give in to temptation but to go against god's will and purpose and to say no i think that this is good for me I mean, really what that is, it's a failure to acknowledge God as the creator, you know, for us to say, well, we know better than you about what we need and what would be good for us. Yeah. And sometimes you'll hear people in trying to kind of understand the idea of sin, like you began our conversation by asking the question, is sin arbitrary? Is it something that is kind of made up? And the Genesis account doesn't leave you with that conclusion at all. It does leave you with the idea that like God created things for purposes that he set out. And when they accomplished that, he deemed them good. And so one way that I like to think about sin is a violation of purpose. And certainly biblically, that's God's purpose. And so when we violate like what the serpent is tempting them to do to rethink God's purpose for them in this, well, then that's when we we come up with that term, that, that sin word that we often think about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's reflected in the actual definition of the word, like the, the classic old school preacher definition is like missing the mark. Right. And but like that's kind of the idea is that when something hits the mark, it's, it's when it's doing what it's supposed to do. Like when God declared that the day of creation was good, day four, that he made the sun, moon and stars. Well, it was because they were shining in the sky, you know, and like there's no other part of God's creation that willfully refuses to fulfill its purpose than us you know it's not like the sun can sin by saying like i'm just going to sleep in today and not (laughs) shine you know and so it's like when god sees things doing what they're made to do that's when he says that's good and so to violate that purpose or to unfulfill that purpose would be missing the mark it'd be not doing what we were made to do 
right? Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. And I think that's why we have these conversations. We ask, what is sin? Because humans, you and I, stand so uniquely in this conversation because of exactly what you're talking about. We have choices to make. We have a will that's imparted uh, in certain places and in certain times in certain ways, and that complicates this whole thing. Because God has given that to us, we don't always just fall in line. And that's why uh, we kick around the idea, what is sin? Because it comes in so many ways and places for us, and, and Genesis is relaying the first time that that happens. Right. Yeah, and so sometimes this is referred to as the fall, um, and I think that's an accurate description or title for this event, the fall. So what are we supposed to take away from this decision that Eve makes to sin? Um, and what does that say about our ability to choose freely, um, the free will that God has given us? And then, and how is that the fall for us? I mean, is this, is, is there something we should see here about a sin that we inherit in some way? Um, and maybe those are questions that will be further answered in other texts that we look at, but is there anything that you see here about how Eve's sin specifically relates to our sins that we may commit today? Yeah, so in verse 6 of Genesis 3, Eve is Eve has two sources of information in front of her. She has what she's already restated that God told her back in chapter 2 when the serpent asked that question. And then you also have the serpent spin on it. You shall not surely die, right? And so what verse 6 offers to us is her moment of decision-making. She sees that the tree is good for food. It is delightful to the eyes and that the tree is to be desired to make one wise. And then the last little bit here is that she took its fruit and ate. So she had two sources of information that she was evaluating but it does seem like an important thing for us to understand that at the end of the day, it was, as you said, a decision. She was weighing what the serpent said, what she knew of God. But notice, ultimately, she goes with what she thought. She hears the information that Satan has given her, and she's the one making a decision based on what she thinks. She's looking at the tree. She's making evaluations about its quality and she decides to eat of it. I think this serves as a template of how the temptation might arise for all of us in whatever way it might be specifically to sin. We have truth. We have what God has set up to be. We have maybe what we've heard or what we've told ourselves. And then at the end of the day, we have our own evaluation and ultimately our own action that we're going to take. And Unfortunately, Eve models for us what it looks like when you choose the thing that God commanded against. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, you see very distinct changes that happen after this action, like sin enters the world. Uh, the world can rightly be described as fallen in, in, in a different state because of this change. Um, but at the same time, I think that what we ought to see is that this is, like you said, a template. Like it's, it's, a, it's a similar decision-making process that each one of us has chosen to make when we sin. And there are other texts that bear that out. Um, when Romans talks about sin and how it's a problem for us, it makes the point in more than one place that all have sinned. And so, you know, I think that what we ought to see here is not like a sin that we inherit as much as a sin that that we fall into the same practice of, like we, we slip into the same faulty way of thinking and we ourselves commit the same kind of sin. And so, uh, you know, maybe if somebody wants to do some further study and we decided this was a text that we didn't really have time to dig into, but Ezekiel 18 makes that point pretty clearly that, you know, God holds each person accountable for their own decisions and not for the decisions of their parents. And so, that seems to me a, a pretty core teaching and, and understanding of what the Bible says about sin, that it is something that God looks at each individual about what they have done, what they have chosen to do. 
And at the end of the day, I think that's important for understanding God's justice and God's fairness, that that's the way he, he sees things. So maybe that's just worth kind of like looking at and worth further study in other places. But is there anything else you wanted to point out in Genesis 3? Anything else about this interaction before we move on to road stop number two? Well, no, I just wanted to agree with you and emphasize that I, too, see this as more of a template. You know, I think it's important that we don't see this necessarily as cascading sin that befalls all of us. Like Eve made some decision that now I'm guilty of. I make decisions that are in the template that Eve is kind of showing us where I have God's way or another way and I choose my way. So I think that is an important kind of foundational understanding that you've you've talked on a little bit here that is going to kind of undergird everything else, like in Ezekiel 18, like in John 9, where people ask Jesus, like, well, who sinned, you know, this man or his parents because he was blind? And Jesus has to, like, clear that up, that it wasn't necessarily any any of those things. You know, there's a lot of assumptions that come with sin, whether it's that we inherit them from other people or whether it's our circumstances must mean then that we're sinful. No, it's a personal decision that all of us have made maybe time and time again in our life and moments where we make our own judgments on things and we go our own ways. Yeah, I agree. And I think that text in John 9 also brings up another interesting question that you touched on of not only is sin inherited, but is suffering punishment for sin? Um, and can can we always interpret or should we sometimes interpret like physical suffering, physical pain as like God directly punishing people for sin? And before we maybe answer that question, that's just something to think about. I think Romans 6, which is our next stop, um, it might might give us some insight into that question too. So anything else from Genesis 3? Okay, so let's let's go ahead and look at Romans 6. Because what we want to do is move from like more of the general description and demonstration of what sin is, how it's defined at the beginning, to how it plays into our own individual lives. And Romans 6, I think, paints a pretty good picture of what happens when we choose to follow the same pattern of sinfulness that Eve had. So I'll read Romans 6 verses 12 through 23. And then we can talk about some ideas there. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness." But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this text to me, uh, points to a, a much more personal application of the principles that we've been talking about. And I guess I'll just start with this question. 
how does this text challenge maybe our preconceptions of what sin is and how it affects us? Or how does it challenge the way most people in the world think about the concept of sin and how it affects us? I believe your question at the very beginning of this podcast, or at least one of them was, is sin a made-up concept? And I think part of that idea of sin being a made-up concept is that naturally then if it was, it wouldn't really have any effect on you. It wouldn't, you know, stick to you in any kind of meaningful way. And this text tells us that it actually does have a real bearing on your existence. It has a real effect deep in you. Um, and what sometimes we may not acknowledge that. Sometimes maybe um, due to various circumstances, we are either ignorant to that or maybe not in tune with that for some reason. But this text reveals that like our freedom or lack thereof hinges on our relationship with uh, sin and whether we are given over to it or not. It, many times in this text, I think we see these words like, you're going to be a slave to this, or you're going to be a slave to that. And part of this is that you are slaves to sin if you're a sinner, right? And then another part of this text also um, speaks to impurity, lawlessness, these kinds of things that are going to be, I guess, characteristics of someone that chases sin, that makes sinful decisions. And so, at least in my understanding from this text, it seems like if we're going to consider sin and whether it's real or not, well, certainly this text addresses it as very real and it has a very real effect on who we are, where we're headed, and what we do. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of times we think about sin as being this temptation to exercise freedom. It's like, well, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I don't want to be constrained. I don't want to be restrained. And that was sort of the way that the serpent tempted Eve was like, look, did God say you can't do this? Do it. Like, just live your best life now. And like, you know, that kind of thing. And here it's like telling us, okay, well, don't be deceived. And it's a totally opposite. Like it flips the paradigm. Verse 12 that we read, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And so like we think sometimes that well, righteousness is is when we like have to submit to what God says and, and doing like following his rules, but the alternative is to be free. And the Bible is telling us, no, the alternative is slavery. That you're actually being your life is being dictated by sin and you're actually a slave to it. You're not free at all. And so I guess what we need to do is define this slavery and define this death that Romans 6 is telling us that sin brings. How is it true that sin results in slavery or death for us? In Genesis 3, when we were there just a moment ago, that was kind of the question, right? And it was a little more veiled than that because it, when God gave the command about not eating of the fruit of that particular tree, one of the things that Satan said in tempting Eve was, you will not die. Of course, Satan had, or God had said that you would if you ate of the tree, right? And when you read the account, she doesn't like literally like double over, you know, poisoned from the fruit of the tree. But you realize that like it begins like this death process for her and her husband. You know, they're cast out of the garden. Things are much harder. There's consequences detailed out in chapter three that come from that that are really unpleasant and painful. And some of which we're experiencing to this day. And so when we see here in this chapter very specifically detailed out for us what this death is, we're reminded of that, that garden scene. Sin actually does bring death, and it doesn't necessarily bring it maybe how we would assume, like we're not doubled over immediately as if we're poisoned. But the conclusion of the text that we just read, like the wages, the earnings of being sinful— is that you'll die. Yeah. But I, I will add that God did say the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so I would say that the day that Adam and Eve ate of that tree, they died. Not, like you said, not physically. They didn't double over, but 
They were cast out of the garden. They were separated from God. They were separated from the source of light and life and joy. And so there was not a physical death, but a spiritual death that took place. And Satan made them doubt that that would actually be true. But, I mean, they ceased to reap the benefits of having God in such close proximity in their lives. And so I think it's that kind of spiritual death that Romans 6 has pictured here for us, that what we're choosing to do is to separate ourselves from the Creator, the one who knows and defines what's good because He made it. And we believe this lie that there's something good apart from Him, and being separated from God is, is death. It's a separation from the source of life. And so, like, how, how does that function for us? I mean, what kind of examples could we consider about how sinfulness is actually captivity and slavery? Because the lie is that sinfulness is freedom. But in what ways is, is being in sin being in slavery? Yeah, so a moment ago you read verse 12, the beginning of our reading. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. I think that's the portrait of how sin is a slavery, that the passions of sin, the temptations of sin are controlling you. There's, there's no freedom in that. You're, you're at the whim of impulse. You're at the control of temptation. And so I think in asking that question, we begin to redefine what is freedom a little bit. It's not just about acting on every impulse that we have or want that we feel, but real freedom is actually self-control. It's actually being able to, I don't know if this is the best word, but to be calculated, to consider the Mm -hmm. things that are before us and to make choices not based on just the flesh, but to actually be truly free from the flesh and to think about things beyond it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's what's being pictured. It's like it's helping us to have a higher view of what freedom actually is. Because if I'm just just doing whatever impulse tells me to do, then I'm not free. I'm a slave to my impulses. Like whatever I feel like doing in the moment, that's what I'm going to do. There's going to be no calculation or control or measuredness. Really, that's slavery. Is that I'm just like, you know, I don't have any control over that. It's just I do what I feel and I feel what I do and. And so, like, this is offering us a higher, actually more free way to live. And the way it's pictured is basically like, okay, you can stop being a slave and become a slave. You're like, wait a second, what? It's like, you know, when you were free in regard to righteousness, Paul says you were a slave to sin, but now that you're a slave to righteousness, you're you know, free, free from sin. And so... I think that like one way to see the way the Bible talks about our humanity is that we will always be a slave to something. We will always be guided and controlled by something or somebody. And really, God is the only one worth being a slave to. Righteousness is the only thing worth being controlled by because righteousness is the only thing that brings life. Like the end road of every other master is death and destruction and disappointment. Yeah, and one of the questions that I think this text is asking or kind of begging that I'll ask you because I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on are like what are some of the practical implications or takeaways from understanding that about sin? Yeah, so I mean like just a practical thing is that I think that when I'm tempted, I need to have a bigger perspective than just the momentary satisfaction or not even satisfaction, but pleasure that giving into that temptation would give me. Um, and being able to recognize like, okay, in the grand scheme, in the big picture, this is not going to make me any happier or more fulfilled or bring any more joy. In fact, like it's just going to bring disappointment if it's apart from the way God has told me to live. I I need to learn to trust more the statements that the Bible makes about like God's commands being for my good always. And that because he is the creator, he knows what's good more than I know what's good. And so, I mean, I think that like we see this principle being demonstrated in things like drug addiction very, very clearly. That people seek some 
thrill or some pleasure or some excitement. And the thing that promised them that freedom actually results in slavery and captivity. I mean, they are just being, their, their whole life, every decision can be consumed by this desire for the next high. And while that might be especially true in something like substance addiction or drug abuse, I think all sin has that addictive quality where the more I have, the more I think that I'm almost where I need to be, if only I could get a little more. To, uh, to quote the Avid Brothers band. <laughs> but like the idea is that like the more the, like the more that I have, it's like drinking salt water, the more thirsty I actually become. And so that's, I mean, not to bring in too many references here, but I think that's what Jesus was getting at by saying, I am the living water. Like I am the only source of real fulfillment and satisfaction. Yeah, and there's a couple places in this reading, verse 13, where it says, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as though uh, as those who have been brought from death to life. That practical side of this that you're talking about is that we have a choice in how we're going to proceed. Once, we're, <laughs> once we understand these realities, once we see the forces at play, so to speak, we can then decide how we want to present ourselves. And I think that the gospel gives us that perspective, and that is really what God's goal is for us, is to come to see reality as it actually is, to see through the deception, to see through the lies. Um, And one way to think about freedom is in what the Bible talks about is like this transformation of the mind, this renewal that happens from the inside out. And when I learn to want to do what I ought to do, that's what freedom is. Um, when, I, when I want to do the thing that I ought to do because I love to do it. And that's, that's the gospel. That's what God is calling us to. Um, okay, so to kind of go back to another question that we talked about, uh, is suffering punishment for sin? Does this text give us any insight into that question, do you think? Yeah. You know, I'd be interested to, to kick this around some because I'm, when I'm looking over this text, you don't, at least in my eyes, I don't see the word suffering appear necessarily anywhere. Um, but it, it is speaking about the push and pull of sin and, and how that affects you. And one of the things that I'm seeing over and over again in this text is that, like we've been talking about, you become slave a slave to something. And I can only imagine that if I'm a slave to something that God has not intended for me, if I'm a slave to a purpose contrary to the creators, then that's going to bring about some pain. Um, and certainly that doesn't mean that that pain is something God wants for me, but it's just I'm contrary to the design, the intention of everything around me. Um, and so with that, the conclusion of this text uh, in, in Romans 6 and verse 23, right, is the earnings of that, the wages of that contrary purpose is just going to bring about ultimately a death. There's some like self-inflicted suffering that sin brings, um, like the natural consequences of doing something opposed to our purpose is going to result in some uh, negative consequences for us. So I, I would say that is suffering punishment for sin? Well, yes, sometimes. I mean, because we have to expect that if we're bringing these consequences on ourselves, that that would entail suffering. But then I think sometimes we ask that question with like seeing bad things happen to people. Um, And Job always kind of stands out as the go-to example of somebody who, I mean, God wasn't punishing him for anything. And you referenced the blind man in John 9. And the assumption was, look, blindness, that, that means that he or his parents sinned. And really, those people were wrong on two accounts, because whether or not his parents sinned would have had nothing to do with it, as we've already established. And then secondly, just because somebody is having a hard time and suffering in some way doesn't necessarily mean that God's punishing them for any kind of sin. But the real consequences of sin that I think we ought to see are these, is the, is the enslavement, is the captivity, is this believing a lie that there's satisfaction where there's not any. And I guess like one thing that I do want to mention is that doesn't mean that I'm saying God doesn't use physical circumstances to discipline us. I think the Bible does teach that sometimes God does 
let things happen to us, bring things on us to make us consider our ways and consider our path. But we should never assume that just because there's physical suffering that well, sin has like God's punishing somebody for their sins. So, yeah. And it, I mean, John nine is we've referenced a couple times when they asked that question, who sinned this man or his parents, we've dealt with, well, it couldn't have been his parents. He wouldn't have like inherited that, so to speak. But then Jesus says, well, no, he didn't. This was actually done so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so, you know, there is a sense in which suffering can actually sometimes actually point us to our faithfulness. Like it's an opportunity to show faithfulness. But I do think the point of Romans 6, as you were rightly saying, is that always the consequence of sin is this spiritual death. Sometimes physical suffering is a consequence of sin. And we have to use some wisdom and discerning like whether or not uh, that's true. We, we are introspective in that way and we consider God's words. But always me earning death, the sin that that, uh, the wages that sin brings me in that way will always be the consequence in a spiritual kind of sense. And we don't want to lose sight of that just because maybe sometimes suffering may or may not be an indication of that. We always need to understand under the surface that death is the only thing that awaits someone who pursues sin regularly. Right. Yeah. So one other thing, if and you might have another thing you want to point out before we leave here. But one, one phrase that stood out to me as we were reading this today is in verse 19. It says, uh, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So we have the idea of like you present yourself as a slave to something either way. But how how does this decision to present our members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness result in more lawlessness? Um, what is maybe the warning or what's being pictured here about lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, do you think? What was that expression you used a moment ago about salt water? Yeah, drinking salt water. I mean, it was, that was it. Yeah. Just drinking salt okay. water. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't remember the four words at that yeah. time. Yeah. So that's kind of what that makes me think of. It's like you drink of it and you're just thirsty for more. Right. Like that's why you don't drink salt water. Right. It makes you worse off. You feel better in the moment, but it actually makes you worse off in the long run. That's verse 19 seems to be saying that to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't know. I was connecting it also to some warnings that the scriptures give us about the callousness that sin can bring so not only are you like desperately trying to find fulfillment in something that's never going to give you fulfillment but then there's also like a callousness and a hardening effect that sin can have and i I mean i i know this to be true in myself and i would say that if anybody's honest they know that to be true that the first time that you lie to somebody the first time that you do something you know that you're not supposed to do like man that really stings but but the more that you give into it, the easier it is to keep giving into it. And not to bring in any other scriptures that we don't have time to really dig into, but there are these warnings about, like, you can get to this point where you just don't even want to come back. And maybe that's the ultimate slavery and death being pictured here is... You can be so far gone that you just don't feel it anymore. And so there's a there's a callousness, I think, um, and a hardening that we need to be aware of, too. I don't know how many stories that I've heard, whether it was from an article I read or whether it was like a newsreel that I watched, whether it was just like conversation I had about a friend of a friend or something like that, where someone was prosecuted for having done something terrible, whatever it may have been. And like when you hear their story, people say, oh, they're just this sweet kid or they were like a nice neighbor or whatever. I can never imagine them doing that. Well, it's because they didn't start by doing that terrible thing. Usually like they started with some smaller thing. And oftentimes if you interview, like when those people are interviewed in the jail cell months later or years later, they would say, yeah, I don't know how I got there. Like I just started by doing this one thing and then before I knew it, it snowballed and I was doing this other thing. Right. And maybe that's that's what this verse is kind of relaying to us. Lawlessness kind of begets lawlessness. Yeah. And I mean, and Jesus warned us of the same things, right? That like the the problem is not murder. It's anger 
it's the the heart problem and so Mm -hmm. yeah those sins begin in the heart okay so so far this whole discussion seems really really sad and, (laughs) and and disappointing and like hopeless really and and maybe that's the point is that sin is this pervasive problem that destroys us and 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 enslaves us and we ought to feel some sort of desperation to be like well is there any other way is there any alternative is there any is there any real freedom and so i'm ready to go to first john three unless you have anything else from romans six okay so why don't we read first john chapter three verses one through ten and and hopefully end on a note of like hope for okay we we have something besides this death and captivity all right first john three beginning in verse one See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, so it seems like this text is presenting us with the same two alternatives that Eve had in the garden to either like do what God had said or to do what the devil was tempting her to do. It's the same two alternative paths that we read about in Romans 6 about being slaves to righteousness or slaves to sin. You either choose to submit to one or the other. What does this text give us specifically in terms of hope in not being in a path that leads to disappointment and slavery and death? What do you see here that should be inspiring to us? Well, what stood out to me right off the bat, and fittingly in verse 1, is that the possibility of being a child of God remains. You know, like you've kind of alluded to throughout our conversation, it's been a little bit uh, dark because we've been talking about sin and the problems of it and suffering and things like that. And in our, you know, quick survey of a couple different places that give us some insights into sin, if we were to just have left before we got to this, we'd have been like, well, we're kind of all in a bad place and it sure does seem like maybe we were children of God and now we're not. And like, why would God want us back? Mm-hmm. But verse one is like, well, the love of the father has been given to us so that we should be called children of God. That's in light of sin already occurring. It's not like a statement from before it ever happened that that's what God wanted. And now maybe like, isn't the case now in light of all of these things, in light of a history of generations of people making choices contrary to God, like he's already set it up to love us in such a way that we could be children. Right. Yeah. And and I think that this passage sort of closes the loop from Genesis 3. And we didn't read it, but in verse 15 of that chapter, when God pronounced the curses on the serpent and on man, what he said specifically to the, the serpent was that there would be an offspring of the woman who would crush his head. He said, you'll bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. And so, in other words, there would be a wound dealt to a descendant of the woman, but there would be a mortal wound uh, dealt by the descendant of the woman to the serpent. 
And I think that's what it's getting at when it says in verse 8 that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's empowering language to me. I mean, no matter how like strong Satan's devices are in my life, no matter how much he's built up to enslave me and captivate me, like here is this mighty, powerful heel of the son of God coming down and smashing his head and like giving me freedom and, and giving me a, a new way to live. And so when we read about all these things that Jesus came into this world to accomplish, according to first John three, I think it speaks to his willingness and ability to deal with the guilt of sin, to make atonement for sin, which is sort of a different concept, but also to give us liberty and freedom from the slavery of sin. And that really is what our conversation has focused on more, is not the way that sin stands between us and God and makes us guilty. We've alluded to that, but specifically to the captivity that that sin brings into our lives and how Jesus gives us freedom, liberation. The importance of the the Son of God, as is stated in verse 8, can't be overstated. It can't be you know, talked about too much because God does want to make us children of his. And yet all the things we've talked about are true. And so what you're saying is a hundred percent right and valuable. And that Jesus, the son of God in verse eight is the only one that was able to accomplish that prophecy of Genesis three fifteen. And in fact, like in Romans, uh, I believe it is 16 um, verse 20. It says that like Jesus, we all kind of share in this. Um, in verse 20, I'll just go ahead and read it here. It says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, which mm-hmm. I think is like the imagery of that promise in Genesis. And he's speaking to people who, like in First John chapter 3, had the love of God that were children of God. And so because of the Son of God being able to do that in First John 3, we can kind of share in that similar experience of like we read about in Romans 6. We're now presenting ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness, and he's going to use us like he used his son to crush that bondage, to crush that slavery as if it were under our feet. Yeah, yeah, I I love that imagery, and I think it's all throughout the Bible. But, you know, by his own arm, he brought salvation is the picture in Isaiah. Um, And then, like, you know, there's the encouragement to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might in Ephesians chapter 6. And it's like God is being pictured, and specifically the Messiah, is being pictured as as the hero that we needed, as the liberator, the conqueror, that he in his great strength and purity and perfection and might overcame this great tyrant, Satan, and now shares in the spoils of that victory with us. And that's empowering because it's not my strength my strength fails me all the time, but it's the Lord's strength that can give me this freedom. And so, like, I've got a few practical questions to take away from this text and maybe even in a more holistic way to consider as we wrap this up. But one way to read this is for it to seem like, well, then I'm never going to sin again. Like, if I do come to Jesus, if I do decide to follow him, that well, now I'll never sin because, you know, he says, verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Uh, Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And so what is this text telling me about the reality of sin in my life if I've chosen to follow God and and be a Christian? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is actually from the Romans 6, is like that idea of like, who do I want to present myself to? You know, do I want to present myself to God and become an instrument of righteousness, or do I want to present myself to Satan as an instrument of unrighteousness? That's maybe that initial decision You know, we all kind of have like maybe a flashpoint where we actually have to make a choice. We're going to set a course for ourselves. And maybe that's what that's speaking to. But this text is like, okay, now that I'm, I've chosen my course, let's say like you actually want to do what's right. I think this text is speaking to like, okay, so now that you've set that course, are you true to it? And 
the way that the phrasing is in this is it speaks somewhat in absolutes, like you'll never sin, you won't, like all those texts that you just alluded to, those verses. But then also like in verse six, it says, no one who abides in him, that is God, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And so like, certainly I'm not God, you're not God, and in such, I'm going to make mistakes I have forces working on me that sometimes sometimes I succumb to, whether that's you know the serpent of old as we've talked about, or it's my flesh or whatever. But like, have I presented myself to God? Have I participated in that that crushing that the Son of God has made possible? And have I patterned my life in such a way that like that's proven true? Do I keep on sinning, or do I keep on? the path of righteousness. And certainly there are aberrations to that, but like we might say like, what's the overall like arc of your life or what kind of path are you generally headed on? And I think that's what this text speaks to is, is like, well, I'm not going to keep on sinning and maybe I do from time to time and I repent of that or I change my way again, but like I don't keep on it. Right. Yeah. So the point for us is not to despair when we make mistakes, but it is, what do you do once you realize that you've given in to one of Satan's lies? And I think the language bears that out, like makes a practice of sinning. Verse six says, keeps on sinning. Verse eight uses that phrase, practice of sinning again. And so none of us are going to be perfect, but if we follow God, then our eyes are opened to what path we want to be on. And whenever we fall short and we make mistakes, we turn those around and we don't just accept them and say, okay, I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah. So related to that, I actually have a question for you and for us to consider. Verse nine, it says that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. What is that trying to to tell us about the relationship, you know, of being born of God and sinning? Well, I mean, God is not the source of any kind of temptation. God is the source of light and life. He is the creator of every good thing, as we've been noting over and over again. Uh, And so there is this opportunity that we have to be born again and to not, you know, be children of the devil, but be children of God. And the seed of God, I think in one way, could be understood to to be God's only son, Jesus. And so if Jesus abides in us, then there's this new way that we live. Paul would say it in Galatians, like, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so there is a new life that God wants to give us, uh, a new purpose, a new system of letting something control us and dictate our decisions. Yeah, and it seems to be that observing that, seeing that in our lives, like if we've been born of God, that's the evidence that we need to know that we're children. We're not slaves of unrighteousness because that's what he says in verse 10. It's that, that's the evidence you have to know you're children of God. And if you don't see that evidence, he says, well, that, that's children of the devil. Right. And so I guess the thing that I just want to leave people with is that what is being offered to us through the gospel is this opportunity to be born again, is this opportunity to be on a path that leads to life and light and joy and fulfillment and all those things that we've talked about. And it's an opportunity to be free from all of those things that would enslave us and bring us negative consequences. It's an opportunity to see through the lies of this world, to see through the lies of the devil to submit to somebody who is infinitely wiser than we are and knows what is really good. And so, I mean, I think that when we understand what sin is, how it's defined, um, and, and, and how it's demonstrated to us in God's word, it creates a longing in us for, a, for an answer. And the answer is Jesus. The answer is to be born again. The answer is that there is another way to live, and it's the only way that leads to life. And so, the Bible, Christianity, it's not something that brings constraint or enslavement in a negative way, but it's the path to, to real freedom, and that's what's being offered to us. So that's sort of like my conclusion from this whole discussion. 
Um, anything else you want to add or anything else you want to bring up before we finish? No, I think that's a perfect conclusion. Uh, whose purpose are you serving? And, and at the end of the day, we have to ask that question and we have to face the realities of it. And sometimes, um, we don't like the answers that we see in our lives, but the only person that is going to miss out by not being honest and asking the question is ourselves. Yeah. Amen. Have the perspective to see the big picture, the way God sees it. Well, it's been a good talk. Thanks for uh, doing this. And we want to thank, thank uh, Richard again for inviting us to be here and to be a part of this. Looking forward to the next time. Yeah. Hope it was helpful. Thank you for listening to this special bonus edition of our podcast. If you would like additional information, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or find us on the web at truthseekers.org. That's truthseekers.org.